This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are discussing the first in a series of images we find in the desert. We will learn about what it means to be a shepherd in the biblical world. Yes, we uh, have gotten up to Book of Numbers now. We did Leviticus in one podcast, if you can believe that. We're going quick now. <laughs> just about in time to slow down for the Book of Numbers. Buckle your biblical seatbelts. Yeah, it is going to pick up quite a bit here. Um but yeah, we, uh, we've gotten through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and we're just about ready to go into Numbers. And Numbers is really the period of time in the narrative where, the, where God's people wander in the desert. And there's no way I want to get into Numbers without trying to introduce us to the desert. So I'll do that in just a moment, but just to review, that's important to us, um, starting in Genesis, had a preface. Uh, where we talked about um, the big the big picture concepts, the nature of God, the nature of humanity, the nature of the world, that essentially God is trying to get us to trust that we are okay, we're loved, we're accepted. And if we'll trust that, uh, incredible things can happen as we partner with God to take creation somewhere. If we don't trust that, uh, if we try to preserve self, uh, if we seek the agenda of self-preservation, um, bad things happen. Tragedy ensues. And so then we're introduced in the introduction, Genesis 12 through 50, to the family of God. People like the patriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, Sheikov. These are guys that um, uh, they're going to show us what's possible when they do trust the story. It kind of takes this big picture, kind of lofty, abstract concepts and brings it down into real life in the midst of struggle and dysfunctional families. And uh, we learn about hospitality. We learn about trust. We learn about forgiveness. We learn about the things that are possible. Uh, We're not going to be perfect, but we can actually partner with God. And so that sets the stage for God's narrative, a narrative that begins in the Exodus story. Um, We talk about three sections with the book of Exodus. We talk about God's rescue and the story of the Passover. Uh, this narrative, this tale of two kingdoms, empire versus shalom, uh, starts with God rescuing his people uh, out of out of Egypt, and then he marries them. We talked about the wedding uh, in our episode under the hoopah, and uh, there's a wedding at Sinai, and the third section of Exodus ends up becoming the tabernacle. We did a couple episodes on the tabernacle there, too. And then in our last episode, we, we talked about the book of Leviticus, because this tabernacle, they now have a big tent in the middle of the desert. And so what are they going to do with that tent? And it's uh, uh, so Leviticus ends up being kind of the owner's manual to the tabernacle. It ends up being the honeymoon suite. It ends up being, um, from a literary perspective, a retelling of Genesis 1. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it introduces us to priesthood. And that's what we talked about um, when God says that they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, God has to explain what a priest is to a group of people that may have a bunch of question marks about what do you mean a priest? And so we talked about atonement and we talked about uh, the priest sandwich with a bunch of laws of how to live in the middle because we learn about priesthood on either end. We learn about what a priest is going to wear and what a priest is going to do and who a priest can marry and all of these different things. And then in the middle of that, the Israelites are invited to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to eat differently. They're going to wear clothes differently. They're going to have a different kind of economy, a different kind of sexuality. Um, They're going to be different than the world around them. And uh, we talked about how to party uh, in the book of Leviticus. We talked about uh, how to take care of the uh, the oppressed and how to redeem those and get them back in the story. And uh, that was kind of Israel sitting on the bank, really, metaphorically. Uh, they had just come out of Egypt and they're about ready to spend what's going to be 40 years in the desert, the honeymoon in the desert with God. And um, and that's where they sit. They sit on the precipice of they've now gotten, they've gotten their marching orders. 
They have gotten their ketubah. They have defined the relationship. But now they have to learn. They have to be shaped. Uh, and so we dive into the desert. And the desert for me is really hard uh, to teach behind a microphone. <laughs> uh, the desert for me was one of the most meaningful lessons that I've ever learned. And I have to actually, while I'm thinking of it, give a huge shout out to Ray Vanderlaan. Um, I mean, I, I spent time with Ray in the desert in 2008. I got to spend more time with Ray in the desert in 2010. And that time deeply, deeply shaped me as an individual and in more ways than I realized it would later on in the story. And now I get the opportunity to take people over to the desert and pass that on to them as well. But without a doubt, the things you're going to hear me say in the next few podcasts, and this one included, uh, come directly from my time with Ray. And that makes it a little tricky because Ray has his own material and DVDs out there. And so if you want to see that, uh, you need to know that his teaching has deeply shaped mine. And we're probably going to end up taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And there's really not one episode, but he has a whole volume, volume 12 of his That the World May Know series with Focus on the Family. And, uh, and that whole thing is just about the desert. And so you're going to hear me pull material from all over those lessons and kind of repackage it and do different things. But uh, his teaching definitely, without a doubt, shaped me um, deeply. So, And that series is called Walking with God in the Desert. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. Yep, that's the volume. That's the volume title. So, yeah, it's hard to sit behind a microphone and talk about the desert because you can't talk about it. You can't learn about it cerebrally. Uh, you got to go this last summer. Uh, there's something about experiencing the desert. You can learn about it, but... It's just not the same. And I only got, what, four days? Yeah. Not, yeah. not 40 years. So. Yeah, no kidding. It's a small taste, but That's man, right. it, was, it was something. Yeah, so we have to operate our imaginations. Because um, wherever you listen to this podcast, uh, even if you do listen to it sweating on a treadmill at the gym, uh, it's still not the same lesson that we're going to learn walking through the Negev in 120 degree heat, um, thirsty, warm water. Uh, it, it's just different. And so it's hard. And there's no way I can build that up. So I just have to ask you, as you listen to these episodes, to try to operate your imagination and imagine what these things might be like. And then if you ever get the chance, I think, Brent, you might recommend this. Spend the money. Come with us. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we're going to take trips hopefully every other year. So we'll hopefully have one in 2018. And if you're interested in coming with us um, to Israel and Turkey to study, come with us because we'd love to have you. Uh, more on that later, some other time. Let's talk about that some other time. Um, but let's see. We have uh, one of my favorite quotes from Bruce Feiler. This comes from his book, Walking uh, with God, um, or Walking the Bible, excuse me, I believe. Walking the Bible from Bruce Feiler. He says this. He says, because the place is demanding, speaking of the desert, because the place is demanding, it builds character. Because it's destructive, it builds interdependence. Because it's isolating, it builds community. And because it's a desert, it builds nations. Uh, one of my favorite quotes. I'll read that again. Bruce Feiler. Because the place is demanding, it builds character. Because it's destructive, it builds interdependence. Because it's isolating, it builds community. And because it's the desert, it builds nations. So, uh, love our time in the desert. Um, these lessons uh, just mean a lot to me. Let's talk about desert for a moment. Just literally, like from a etymological perspective. Desert is the word midbar in the Hebrew. M-I-D-B-A-R. Midbar. 
Uh, Hebrew works off of a system of consonants. Hebrew doesn't technically have vowels. It has breathing marks. Uh, so what you have is you have a bunch of consonants in the Hebrew. Um, and so uh, a group of consonants will form what's called a root word. And then a whole bunch of different root words get formed, a whole bunch, excuse me, a whole bunch of other different words get formed off of that root word by just switching the vowels. Uh, and that's called a word tree. So you'll have, you'll have an entire word tree based off of a root word. And what that tells you in the Hebrew is somehow all of these images, you, write, you might remember from all the way back at the beginning, Brent, we talked about Eastern versus Western, and we said Eastern views things in terms of what? In terms of images. Images and pictures, right? So words for them are not just definitions like they are for a Westerner. Words for them are pictures. And to somewhat talk about this, there are 8,000 words in biblical Hebrew. 8,000 words in biblical Hebrew. To compare that, there are 400,000 words in the English language. So what that means is there is a lot more packed into a Hebrew word than there is in our typical English word. And they do that by making it driven by a picture or an image. And so you'll always have a root word, which will be driven by uh, a grouping of consonants. So the word that we're working with here with desert, the root word is debar. You would just say D-B-R. D as in dog, B as in boy, R as in Roger. D-B-R. I probably missed the call signs there, didn't I? Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say Roger that. <laughs> so we have Debar. Uh, you could say D-A-B-A-R, but remember there's no vowel. So you use the breathing marks to determine what vowel sounds you put in between these consonants. So D-B-R would be Debar, which literally means word. In fact, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, I think we might have mentioned this in our podcast. It's not the Ten Commandments at all. It's the Ten words. And the the idea there was debar. So there are 10, there are 10 debars. There are 10 words. Um, that's your root word. So now if you start to modify the vowel, the vowelization of that word, you start to change the words quite a bit. Um, so debar, if it becomes midbar, the M there isn't actually a consonant. It's like more of like a modifying consonant in Hebrew. So midbar, you still hear the D-B-R, M-I-D-B-A-R is desert. So debar, word. Midbar, desert. Deber, D-I-B-B-E-R, would be to speak, which you can hear how that's not just D-B-R, but you can also see how that's definitely connected to word. So deber and debar, related, uh, and related in meaning. The question is, what does to speak and word have to do with desert. And for them, this is where the word starts to speak to us, even without definitions. Because you go to the desert to learn how to speak and to learn how to listen to word. Desert is where you finally learn how to become a people of the ears. Um, this isn't the only words we find here in this word tree. There's a madbir is one of the words that we use for shepherd. So madbir, M-A-D, B-I-R. This still has the D-B-R. It sounds like midbar, mudbir, shepherd, desert, word, speak are all related. Uh, Dober, D-O-B-E-R, is the word for pasture. Uh, there's even a word called devir, D, we might say apostrophe, V-I-R. The V and the B are the same in the Hebrew. So we have midbir, midbar, desert. We have dabar word, we have deber to speak, we have mudbir, 
shepherd. We have Dober, pasture. We have Devir, which means sheepfold. All of these words are desert words. When you hear the word tree, DBR, you think of desert. And so what I want to talk about today is one of those words, the madbir, which is shepherd. One of the biggest images of the desert is the image of shepherd. I can remember the day when I first learned this in 2008. Uh, we were driving down day number one. Maybe it was day number two for us, actually. It was day number two in the desert. And uh, we were on our way down towards the Egyptian border. And all of a sudden, the bus pulls over. And Ray jumps on the microphone. And he says, everybody out of the bus. We got a shepherd and a flock. So we all pile out of the bus. We have to watch for cars as we run across the highway and then up onto this hill. And we got to watch this amazing flock um, just kind of go around us. And for probably the next 45 minutes, we got to just sit and watch this flock. It was this incredible experience. And I learned, I learned so much from watching the shepherd. Um, one of those things that I learned is that the shepherd uh, leads with their voice, which all of a sudden brings out all of this to bear and to bar and to speak and to lead and to word, all this stuff works together. And you start to realize why this is the place where you go to learn because the shepherd leads their sheep in the desert. And maybe that's a better place to start. The desert is the place of the shepherd. Like when we think of shepherds here in America, we think of a different kind of pasture. We think of a pasture pasture, an American pasture. I was going to say, when you say pasture, right? Uh, well, what was that one? Do, do beer? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, Dober. Yep. Dober. When you say pasture, that doesn't connect with the image of desert in my mind. <laughs> not not, not at all. naturally, anyway. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, because it's the wrong, like we get the wrong image. We think of pasture and we think of like waist deep alfalfa. We think of these big green fields of barley or or where, where the cows are at in our culture. But in their culture, pasture is the desert. Um, they, these shepherds lead their flocks on these mountains. Um, one of the other images that we become really familiar with is what's called paths of righteousness. If you ever see the mountains in the desert and you were there, we would drive by them all the time in the bus. We're going to try to fight, maybe find some pictures we might even have for you for this podcast if we can find any good ones. Um, there, there are these paths. Um, it looks like tens of these uh, walking paths. And what it is is thousands of years of sheep being grazed on these same hillsides year after year after year. You don't put sheep in the same place as you put fields. In fact, in the biblical world, that only happened at one time during the year, and that was right after, right around the time of Sukkot. At the fall harvest, you would bring the sheep in to graze the stubble and simultaneously fertilize uh, your fields. But it was about a two-week period. Um, right after that season where you would have the sheep come in. The sheep don't graze in fields. Farmland is far too scarce and far too valuable to waste it on livestock pasture. You take the sheep out to the desert. The desert is the land of the shepherd, not the farmland of the shefela. So um, the desert ends up being this place where uh, the shepherd leads their sheep, and they don't lead them with the stick. And this is where images from Egypt, empire, and shalom start to come together. You see, Pharaoh's image was what, Brent? The stick, the uh, the command, the rule. The, right. Raised the in, foot. like, raised in defiant intimidation, right? Because he was going to lead with the stick. The shepherd never leads with the stick. I know there's all kinds of fun Bible lessons out there about the shepherd that breaks the lamb's leg when it, that's not, 
It's just not how a shepherd leads their sheep or how he'll poke the sheep with his staff and prod them. No, no, a shepherd has a staff uh, for very practical reasons, but none of them would be for leading the sheep. Um, It could be reasons of defense and fighting off predators. It could be a walking stick, but uh, a shepherd does not use the stick to prod or beat or lead the sheep. The shepherd leads with their voice. I have a video, in fact, I think you've seen it even, of this young shepherd girl. And there's a flock moving across a, a mountain, maybe an eighth of a mile away. And I've got it on video camera, this little blob of sheep moving a- along this mountain. And then all of a sudden you see the shepherd come into view and she's 70 yards behind the flock talking to them. And they are following her commands because the sheep know her voice and they will only follow her voice. In fact, if you follow the papers, um, over in, in the land of, of Israel, the land of the Bedouins, you'll often, uh, you can even read headlines of uh, 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 sometimes a tragedy will, will ensue and a shepherd will be lost. And you practically lose the entire flock if they haven't passed on that role to another generation because the sheep will not follow any other shepherd's voice. In fact, you can even put multiple flocks in one sheepfold in one pen together. A shepherd can get up in the morning, walk out, give one command, and only his sheep will come after him. Um, A sheep, you might think of so many things that Jesus says. In fact, another book I will recommend at this point will be Kenneth Bailey. uh, has an amazing work called The Good Shepherd. Um, Kenneth Bailey is always excellent. You can always read Kenneth Bailey and know you're doing the the right thing. Uh, But uh, The Good Shepherd, and he talks about a lot of these things too, because Jesus uses this imagery over and over and over again. This would be imagery that we would expect from the people of the Bible. Not only are they going to be shaped here in the Torah, but Abraham was a person of the desert. Isaac was a person of the desert. Jacob was a person of the desert. Joseph was a person of the desert. Where does God take Moses for 40 years uh, to shape him to be the greatest leader of Jewish history outside of Jesus, but the desert? Um, what does what does Moses do as a vocation for those 40 years, Brent? Well, he's a, he's a shepherd. Can you think of any other people in the Bible, big names in the Bible that are shepherds? Uh, David is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. Pretty big deal. Uh, you got some prophets that end up being shepherds. Like yeah. this is one of the most common images of uh, the Bible. And we would expect it to be because of who the people of the Bible are and this idea of shepherds. So um, so many things I could talk about shepherd. I could just do this for like two hours. But how about you pull open uh, Psalm 23 and let's read through that. And we'll talk about some of the images that come up. We're going to blow up people's worlds here with Psalm 23. Let's do this. All right. Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. All right. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. All right, let's stop right there. Green pastures, like you said. Uh, you've seen some of these green pastures, in fact. What mm-hmm. were those green pastures like? Uh, you know, just this, this lush little tuft of grass. <laughs> <laughs> so we're out in the middle of the desert. We have these uh, huge desert mountains. And as far as your, your initial eye can see, uh, there's nothing there. There's no vegetation. And yet these sheep are grazing. And you're like, what in the world are they grazing on? Uh, as you walk along these mountains, you realize that the, the little, and I mean little rainfall that they get every year, uh, will produce, and particularly around the rocks or around those paths, because of the way the water settles, will produce these small little tufts of grass. 
And if the sunlight ever hits the hillside just right, you can see the green. And it's where the Bedouins and uh, the people of that culture get that idea of green pastures. But there is no such thing as green pastures as we think of green pastures in the biblical culture. Like we think of a sharing size bag of M&Ms and it's just one M&M. <laughs> it's just one M&M. That is and it's brown. Correct. Yep. So it blends in. <laughs> and one of the things that they'll that they'll talk about is one of the lessons you learn in the desert is the lesson of just enough. This is going to show up over and over and over again. The desert is not the place of abundance. The desert is a place of just enough. And so one of the things I remember Ray teaching me um, was uh, the desert teaches you how to be okay in this moment. You don't know where the next 10 minutes are going to come from. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. And I don't know if I'm going to have enough 10 minutes from now. But what I know is that if I'm with my shepherd, he's going to lead me to the place where I have enough for right now. I have enough for, the, I have enough for a bite in my mouth right now. Will I have enough 10 minutes from now? I, I don't know. I'm going to follow my shepherd. I'm going to trust the shepherd. Like if we talk about trusting the story, like we've talked about trusting the story quite a bit. The desert is where you ultimately learn how to trust the story. If you need to get... What did we say that God needed to get out of his people, right? Do you remember? What do you need to oh, get Egypt out? If you're going to get an entire Egyptian worldview out of your people, there's no better place in the desert. If you've learned in Egypt how to trust on man, how to trust for, uh, on Pharaoh, how to trust our ability to produce, and now God's trying to teach you how to rest and how to trust that he's going to produce for you, there's no better place to learn it to the desert because you have no idea where tomorrow is going to come from. You don't have any idea where this afternoon is going to come from. All you know is that I have what I need for right now. And that's one of the things that David is saying in the Psalm. And we get this other picture in our mind. We think, well, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I remember the picture that was in my Bible college lobby, like had Psalm 23 on it and this wonderful green field and a flowing brook, bubbling brook. And I was, you know, the sheep are lying down in the shaded. Uh, it was just so not the image that David is working with here. Because the phrase right before that, read that first, that phrase right before that one more time, Brent. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Another translation would say, I shall not want. Because the lesson of the desert is that he teaches me how to... What was the first test, Brent? Can you remember? First test on the way to Sinai was the water at Marah. And what was the big lesson? God wanted to teach them what? That man does not live on bread alone. Right, but on every... Every word. The desert is where we learn the lessons that they were supposed to learn in their testing. Uh, If they needed to learn how to wait on every word, and apparently they did, because they had to do one well rather than go to 12 wells and 70 palm trees... If they've got to learn that, there's no better place than to take them into the desert and let God be their shepherd. I'm going to teach you how to wait on every word. Put your head down and wait for the next tuft of grass. Um, So go ahead and keep reading Psalm 23. Uh, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Oh, quiet waters. Ah, I love the the other translation of still waters because the image there is a little bit better. And the desert, how, how many bubbling brooks did you see in the desert there, Brent? Um, 
Well, I can't remember any. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there were no bubbling brooks in the desert. There's no there's no flowing stream in the desert where the shepherds are. Still waters is the water that's left over after the rains of the rainy season, and they get together in these little muddy pools at the bottom of the wadi. They are rare, but every now and then you run across these little small watering holes. He leads me, and again, it's not the image of American abundance. It's the image of Eastern shepherd just enough. I shall not want. God is my shepherd. He'll give me the green pastures that I need. He'll get me to still waters when I'm thirsty. Keep going. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Oh, there's your paths of righteousness. Uh, uh, some people, when I talk about that, are like, okay, but what are they really called? Because they're not called paths. No, really. They were actually called by the shepherds, by the Bedouin shepherds, not just biblical shepherds. Bedouin shepherds are called paths of righteousness. Um, so there's that another shepherding. This whole psalm is just about being a shepherd. Keep going. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay. Valley of the shadow of death is another shepherd term. Um, you get stuck in the valley of the shadow of death if you don't get your flock back by nightfall. Uh, everything can be incredibly dark, especially if depending on what the, what the moon's doing or the weather might be doing. But the valley of the shadow of death is this horrible place to be stuck where uh, the flock needs to be somewhere else. The shepherds, and they're going to... They are going to follow the voice of their shepherd. In fact, in the valley of the shadow of death, instead of walking behind the flock, uh, the shepherd is going to come up and he's going to get in the middle of the flock and he's going to have the, have the flock crowd around him and he's going to walk. Um, there was a story, let's see, 2006, I believe. Uh, there was a shepherd that was, uh, somehow he got himself out ahead of the flock just on the other side of a chasm. And without thinking, he turned around and called to the flock and almost the entire flock walked off the chasm to follow the voice of the shepherd. That's how committed they are to following. People always talk about how stupid the sheep are. But I'll tell you the one thing the sheep do right is the sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd. And they trust the voice of the shepherd. And they do what the voice of the shepherd says. Um, so there was that. But go ahead and keep reading Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. Okay, so now the psalm shifts to a, uh, we talked about Avraham and his Middle Eastern hospitality, which again is a desert image. Avraham lived in in tents out in the middle of the desert. And so preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, we We have Abraham, we have patriarchs here. This is still desert. This is still shepherds. I can remember one of the times I met a shepherd, I was also invited in. Uh, to eat and to dine. And uh, these images go together. This is the same picture. So keep going. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right. So uh, just lots and lots of of desert images here. The desert is where I'm going to learn how to trust. The desert is where I'm going to learn how to listen. Uh, Maybe more than than anything else, God's going to use our deserts to teach us how to become uh, people of the ears and not people of the eyes. This life is pretty difficult if we become people of the eyes because it looks like uh, the darkness is winning. It looks like there's all kinds of things to be worried about. It looks like, but God says, do not fear, take heart. I have overcome the world. God says to trust him. God says he'll take care of us. God says, he invites us to be people of the ears, 
and not people of the eyes. And so it's one of the, and which brings up a point I just said a moment ago, I said, our deserts. Hopefully we know as we're listening to this podcast that we're talking about a literal desert, uh, but we're really not talking about the literal desert. Hopefully all of our listeners are quick enough. They've thought, uh, they've realized we're really talking about all of our own deserts. Um, this isn't just about the desert that the Israelites wandered in in the book of Numbers. This is about the deserts that you and I go through. And I believe God takes us to these same deserts to teach us many of the very same lessons in our own lives. Um, I can say that from personal experience. I can say it from counseling others in their deserts. Uh, as a pastor, um, I just think this is something that is hard. I don't think we'd ever wish for our deserts. I don't think we'd ever ask them for anybody else. Uh, but there are also times that if we learn how to see them, if we learn how to see them, how God sees them, uh, I don't know if we ever um, uh, wish them away, wish God to take those back. And I think we look on them with a certain fondness that has shaped us like nothing else has. But that's the image of shepherd. And, it, and we've talked shepherd before, Brent. We've been, is there anything that you can remember about our discussions of shepherd that we've missed? Uh, well, we talked a lot about sheep, but that's not always what the shepherd is caring for, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. So we have sheep and goats. Almost every Eastern flock has sheep and goats, and that's because they produce two different things. Uh, your sheep produce your wool, your goats produce your milk, and the Bedouins say it's a good thing because they eat two different things. Your sheep are going to eat the tufts of grass that we talked about, those green pastures. The goats are going to eat everything but the tufts of grass. <laughs> I've been told a goat will eat absolutely anything um, except the grass that the sheep need to eat. And so you graze them together because they're not grazing off the same resource, um, and you're getting two different resources from the time spent together. Now, what's interesting about that is when Jesus uses uh, the idea of uh, sheep and goats in the prophets, uh, he, he calls on that idea from like Ezekiel 34 uh, would be an example. Um, there are images in Jeremiah. But Jesus tells a parable about separating the sheep and the goats. Very desert, very shepherd image, um, because you always have sheep and goats in the same flock. Um, and uh, one of the things that you see when you see the sheep and the goats in the same flock, uh, if, if uh, <laughs> you've seen that video that I was referencing earlier, you've got a blob of sheep all blobbed together, following the word and the voice and the command of the shepherd, all moving together. And then you see the shepherd come into view about 50, 60, 70 yards behind the flock. And then can you remember what you saw after the shepherd came into view? Oh, and then you have this random smattering of goats. <laughs> Just all over the mountainside, right? You have like this amoeba of sheep. And then you have the shepherd and then the goats kind of like following behind because the goats never do what the shepherd says. The goats always know a better way. Now they're going to, they're going to come along. They're going to get where they're going. They're going to follow the shepherd ultimately, but the shepherd wastes no time trying to command the goats because goats are goats and they're never going to follow the voice of the shepherd. They're just going to do what the goat wants, but sheep. So when Jesus says, uh, well, there's this parable about sheep and goats. And, and the sheep, well, they did what God asked. They took care of the hungry. They fed the hungry. They gave water to the thirsty. They visited the sick. They visited the people in prison. They, these are things that God asked of them. They were sheep. They followed the voice of the shepherd. But then there were people that always knew a better way. They always had a better answer. And they did it their own way. And those would be goats. And so one of the big questions I always ask when we get a chance to see this uh, on our trips is which are you? Like if we were to take this and make it the image of your spiritual life, which group are you a part of? Are you, are you a part of the sheep? 
huddled together following the voice of Jesus? Or are you more of the goats? And notice they're all a part of the same flock. Like they're all following the shepherd. They're all going to like think they're getting where they're going to go. But are you really a part of the flock that actually knows how to listen and hear uh, the voice of the shepherd? But anything else you can think of about our time together? Uh, the other thing I was thinking is we might want to talk about who the shepherds are. Like what oh, what sure. kind of person might you find in the role of a shepherd? Always surprising to find out that the shepherds in this culture are almost always, without exception, uh, girls, um, younger girls. So one of the roles of um, the younger women in a family is to shepherd the flocks. And it's been this way for a very long time, including the biblical culture. Um, I know when we talk about the shepherds during the Christmas story, uh, there's a lot of discussion about how these shepherds... Um, were men because of where they were shepherding in Bethlehem, and uh, they had been commissioned by Herod and other officials to shepherd. And that might be true. That might be true. Generally speaking, uh, shepherds are almost always women. Every shepherd I've ever seen in all of my years over in Israel have always been girls. Um, And that just changes your image. so and it's actually unusual for Moses or David to have been a shepherd. Very much so. Like what that shows you is that like when Moses goes out there, he's working for Jethro as a foreigner, as an alien, as as somebody low, low on the totem pole who's just like, I don't, just let me shepherd sheep. Like I'll take that kind of backwater job. When Moses goes to the well, he has to chase away. And now in some cases, he's chasing away male shepherds. Chances are they were there overseeing the flock. I've seen that before. I've seen the male patriarch sitting in the shade while the girls of the family take the flock out and tend it. Um, So sometimes they're there, but he chases away some men who are harassing some girl shepherds. Um, So we do see that in the story. Um, Golly, there was something else that you uh, were saying there that... Uh, struck my memory. What was that? Oh yeah. So we have the uh, the story of David. David is out shepherding sheep, uh, and we're like, "Oh, David's a shepherd." I've had lots of students be like, "Well, David was a shepherd," um, but David leaves the flock. He doesn't just leave it in the middle of the mountainside. Like David is sent out on a on like a an errand. He's not the actual shepherd. He's probably out helping his big sisters tend sheep. He's probably a young kid. One of my, I remember my first trip, 2008, my very first trip. I have a picture of this. I have a picture of two young girls shepherding the flock and they have their two little brothers. Um, and it's a horribly, it's like a two megapixel camera. And you've told me it's even less than a megapixel when I actually get them resolved. But, um, if I can, if I can get it to you, you'll have to put this picture in the slides. There's a, I have a picture of these two young shepherd girls, and then they're two little brothers. I'm guessing maybe six, seven, eight years old. And they've, I can almost guarantee you, they've been sent out with their big sisters for the day so that big sister can watch them. They're not doing the work of shepherding the flock. They're being watched by their big sisters. And the picture I have was just brilliant because one of the, one of the boys is holding a sling, Like one of the things that they do that shepherds do is they throw rocks every day. I had one teacher tell me um, hundreds, sometimes thousands of rocks a day. It helps them guide the flock. They don't throw the rocks at the sheep. They throw them to give the commands and help them steer the flock. So they might throw them to the right of the flock to get them to go left or throw them to the left or behind the flock to get them to speed up or, but they get really, really good at throwing rocks. And this little boy that I was watching on my first trip had a sling in his hand. And I thought that is the image. That is the picture of David. I finally had it. Um, this little kid, I mean, what is David in the Goliath story? Like seven, eight, 
nine, maybe 10 years old, like sent by his dad to go take some cheese to his brothers who were out fighting in the war. Um, just this crazy uh, image that shook up my typical image of who shepherds were. So yeah, absolutely. Good question. We'll keep talking about shepherds. It's not, listen, that biblical image isn't going anywhere. We're going to keep coming back to that time and time again. So um, shepherd will be a big deal. Well, I think that wraps it up for this episode. If you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. Uh, Once again, if you're starting up a group or have another group going anywhere else in the country, please let us know about that. If you want to get old Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. I'll try to have as many pictures and uh, links from this episode available. I'm not exactly sure what we'll be able to find, but you'll find all of that on the website. Uh, So thanks for joining us on the Bayma podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.